we're still, I think, you know, in the beginnings of, of advocating for change and seeing actual change. And a lot of the changes are coming from the margins, right? They're coming from the Indies. Um, they, but they allow for the beauty and the authenticity and the specificity of our lived experience and our stories to be able to be exposed to a wider audience. And then hopefully those kind of storytelling um, authenticity will then infiltrate and permeate you know, mainstream representations of us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Culturally Relevant, a podcast about film, television, art, and culture. I'm David Chen, and I recently saw a headline in the Los Angeles Times that read, Dwayne Johnson accounts for a third of all API movie leads as study finds sad stats. There is a subheading underneath, Asian and Pacific Islanders filled less than 6% of all speaking roles in 1,300 top-grossing Hollywood films and new study finds, and it gets worse, end quote. The article is primarily a write-up of a study called The Prevalence and Portrayal of Asian and Pacific Islanders Across 1,300 Popular Films, and one of the authors of that article, Nancy Wong Yoon, is my guest on today's episode. The past year, we've seen a rash of anti-Asian violence around the country, especially in urban areas, and there are multiple complex causes behind this. One thing it's made me acutely aware of is how I'm being perceived at all times. And of course, one thing that helps to create and shape perceptions is our media. So it's really timely that Professor Yoon's article comes out in the midst of all the stuff that's happening in the world right now. The entire report is illuminating. It talks about what exactly the prevalence of this issue is among really popular films, as well as some practical suggestions for what folks in Hollywood can do. I really enjoy talking with Professor Yoon about how the study came together and some of her own personal reactions to this study's findings. So look forward to our conversation momentarily. You can find more episodes of this podcast at culturallyrelevantshow.com or wherever your podcast can be downloaded. And if you enjoy this podcast, there's a couple of really simple and free things you can do to support it. Number one, you can leave a really quick star rating or a review for us at Apple Podcasts. It really does help. You can also follow this podcast on Twitter at CREFSHOW. That's C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can go on over to patreon.com slash Dave Chen and join the nearly 500 folks there who are helping to make my work possible. I want to say a special thanks to my executive producer patrons this month, Scott Walkholtz, Stephen Miller, Sid Yadav, Stephen Austin, Dan Flanagan, Jeff Evans, and Mark Warner. Thank you all so much. Thanks to everyone over at patreon.com slash Dave Chen for supporting my work. It's greatly appreciated. All right. Uh, so Nancy Wong Yoon is a sociologist at Biola University and the author of Real Inequality, Hollywood Actors and Racism. He's also the co-author of The Prevalence and Portrayal of Asian and Pacific Islanders Across 1300 Popular Films, which comes out of the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative. Here's my chat with Nancy Wong Yoon. Stick around afterwards for our weekly recommendations. Nancy Wong Yoon, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, David. So I want to ask you, what was it that first motivated you to want to study Asian, Asian American, and Pacific Islander representation in films? 
I think that as a child, um, I was an immigrant to this country, to the United States, and I pretty much was left alone by my single immigrant dad at home. And all I did was watch TV. And I realized I was using television to learn about this new country that I was becoming a part of. And I think early on, I always thought of the United States as a white country coming from Asia. Um, but then, you know, I went to school in Long Beach, California, and my friends were totally diverse, um, lots of Asian Americans, in fact. And so I think as I grew older, I started to realize there was a discrepancy between how Hollywood represents the United States um, and how the United States actually was and is. And so I think that when I got into college, I really became interested in looking at representation from an analytical perspective. And when I, um, you know, did my research as a doctoral student at UCLA, becoming a sociologist, I decided to look deeper into the industry and just was really interested in how um, culture and popular culture intersects with how uh, the U.S. sees certain minority groups, um, actually majority groups now in certain parts of the country, but historically marginalized groups and how they are represented and how that affects their um, status in society. Okay, I got to ask you about some of these TV shows you watched as a kid. Like, what were some of your favorite TV shows growing up, and and how did they shape your perspective on America? So I grew up in a time where there was no streaming services. You had to watch whatever was on um, TV. And I watched, I was actually really interested in older sitcoms because those were the things that were on, I guess, after school. And one program that I really enjoyed was I Love Lucy. So I Love Lucy was one of the few representations of an immigrant with Desi Arnaz. And, and you know, he was as close as I could get to a, a representation of an immigrant, someone who was uh, othered, but then still part of the society. And it was comedic, but I think there was some, some elements of relatability and drama in terms of, you know, just conflicts and having an interracial um a relationship and marriage and children and just friends. And I think that I was really drawn to it. And of course, you know, as a kid, you love um, the the comedy of Lucille Ball. So, you know, and also having a woman, right, as a, as a lead. So I think at the time, it was one of my favorite shows. And there were silly shows like I don't know, Gilligan's Island. These were all like running on. I think they were reruns, right? Because they weren't on when I was when I was young. But those were the ones that I remember. I also watched a lot of wrestling. <laughs> and again, wrestling. <laughs> wrestling is actually quite diverse, right? So I think I was just mm. I, I was subconsciously drawn to the programs that had more diversity, um, even though I wasn't aware necessarily of, you know, I had no racial consciousness at the time. But I, I enjoyed watching, I think, obviously silliness as a kid, but also uh, I think programming that had um, that had the, the very, very few people of color on TV. You are the co-author of this study about Asian and Pacific Islander representation. I'm curious, were there any specific uh, portrayals of Asians and or Pacific Islanders uh, as a kid growing up or, or more recently that kind of crystallized the need to study this specific form of representation? So the first time that I saw myself, so like I said, I grew up in, in Asia, I grew up in Taiwan. And so I grew up seeing people who looked just like me having all sorts of different kinds of roles. I, I actually was a fan of Jackie Chan, not just as a, a martial arts uh, action hero, but he was actually a singer and a dramatic actor. So I saw all those movies that he did, you know, when I was little. So I feel like I, I it's not like I was, um, 
I didn't, I wasn't exposed to a complexity right. of Asian representation. But then when I saw the Joy Luck Club in high school, I mean, I had read the book by Amy Tan. And then when I saw Wayne Wayne's movie, that was the first time I realized, oh, I've never seen an Asian American story before. That was the first time that I, uh, especially the mother daughter relationship between Tamlin Tamita's character and Tai Chen's character when they were in that beauty salon and she's, she was crying. She's like, I, you know, everything I do, I can never please you. I remember crying and thinking, oh my goodness, this is just like my mom and myself, you know, it's so hard to please her. And they're speaking in English. And, and it just felt like that was an actual reflection of my lived experience, which I hadn't seen. Um, prior to that in Hollywood. And how did it make you feel when you saw that? Like, sounds like you were deeply moved by it, but did you feel like, why aren't I seeing this more? Were you upset about that? Or were you grateful to have any representation? Like, what was your emotion at that time? I was uh, surprised. I think that was a, the first time I realized that I hadn't seen anything like that prior, right? Because I think you don't know <laughs> what you're missing until you see it. So <laughs> that was when I was like, oh, I've never seen a story that actually reflects my lived experience. I, I, I was really into actually Hong Kong and, and Chinese drama at, the, uh, at in high school. I worked at a blockbuster. So I actually was really into like the, nice. um, the, the Zhang Yimou and the Wong Kar Wai films. And so I was, I, I, I was, you know, again, I was seeking out people that look like me, but it wasn't until the Joella Club that I saw, oh, there isn't, all of those portrayals are of people in China or in Hong Kong. Um, they aren't portrayals of me as a, you know, Asian American growing up in the United States. So I think that was the point where I started to seek out more um, representations of Asian Americans and American stories, you know, of, about Asians growing up here and living here. And, and then when I got into college, I started to take more Asian American literature. I was an English major. So I was still kind of Anglophile-ish. I was still, I was still very much, you know, a product of the U.S. educational system, right? Which is very uh, white-centric, very Eurocentric. And so um, it wasn't until I started to, I was actually a poetry creative writing major. It wasn't until I started to write poems about my lived experience that I realized that we just, I needed to seek out voices and also reading more Asian American literature. And that was actually my first exposure was through reading. And then, uh, and of course, seeing, you know, the lack of representation, but, but seeing Joy Luck Club and then seeing, um, I think the Indies, I remember when Better Luck Tomorrow came out and, and that was the first time. And actually one of the few times still of seeing Asian Americans in a high school setting. Like we don't have enough YA where it's like almost majority Asian American schools. Cause that was the kind of school I went to. I, I grew up in Cerritos, California, and I went to a school that was, I think 80 some percent, if not 90% Asian American. And I still haven't seen that really represented. Right. And I think uh, better luck tomorrow was the closest. Cause I, I don't know if you know, but better luck tomorrow was actually based on a Southern California, loosely based on a Southern California, Orange County high school. That was actually also majority Asian American. And so it was actually the whole incident that was represented. It was actually happening during my high school where there was a lot of actually Asian American crime. And, you know, that's not represented. Asian American teen crime, right? That wasn't something mm -hmm. that was represented prior to Better Luck Tomorrow, which is such a great film still to this day. And so, yeah, it got me really interested in wanting to see more representation and, of course, critiquing the lack of representation. Yeah, so tell us about how this study came about, the prevalence and portrayal of Asian and Pacific Islanders across 1,300 popular films. How did this uh, happen? 
Yeah, so this study is part of the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative, and this is Stacey L. Smith and her team, and they've been doing this research for a really long time. They've put out several, I mean, you know, the study actually um, traces back to 2007, and they, they started out, I think, with um, gender, and then they broadened it to race, and and they actually contacted me um you know, this year and said, do you want to collaborate on one that focuses specifically on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders? And I had done, um, in 2005, I had done actually a television, um, primetime television study with a team of other graduate students. We just decided that it was time for Asian Americans to have their uh, representation in television uh, studied. And so I, you know, at UCLA, they actually had started those projects um, on, I think there were focuses on uh Black Americans as well as Latinx, and we hadn't had one for Asian Americans. So I I started actually interested in systematically examining both quantitatively and qualitatively um, data in terms of you know what are we seeing on screens. Um, I started in television, and then we did a ten year follow up. So I have been doing this kind of research for a long time, um, and it's coming out of UCLA and now USC. So a lot of the academic institutions have been a part of this growing interest and growing acknowledgement and recognition and systematically actually having data that points to the invisibility as well as stereotyping of people of color, and in this case, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Let's talk about some of the top line findings of this study, right? If you could only give a few bullet points of what this study found, what would those bullet points be? Yeah, so I think uh, we like to think that post Crazy Rich Asians, there are so many Asian American, you know, representations and everything's so trendy now. But I think when you look at the data, especially longitudinally from 2007 to 2019, um, it's only about 5.9% speaking roles in the top 100 films, right? So these are the films that the majority of theater goers would have seen. We're not talking about the indie movies, right? We're not talking about Minari or even, um, uh, you know, Sound of uh, Metal. So these are movies that were nominated this year and starred Asian Americans, but they were smaller indie films, right? So we're looking at the top box office hits, which are the ones that have the widest reach. And it was 5.9% speaking roles. And when you look at co-leads and leads, so the main um, people that are heading these movies, it was less than 3.4%, right? And Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders make up about 7 point, over 7%, right? About 7.1, 7.2% of the U.S. population. So this is actually below population parity. So that's not good. You know, we're not, we're actually not represented according to how we are in the United States. There's not a mirroring of, of actual AAPI presence. And so, you know, this is concerning. And then when we look at um, behind the scenes, it's even worse. It's like three, it hovers around 3% in terms of directors, producers, casting directors. And so the people that are making the decisions that are telling the stories and creating, they're not, you know, Asian American Pacific Islanders. And that makes sense because then they're not telling these stories um, in terms of uh, quantity. And then when we looked at quality in terms of stereotypes, it was really concerning because about 67% of the characters that um, I led the team um, along Along with Stacey L. Smith and the Annenberg, we when we looked at in 2019, uh, the top 100 films, we found that about 67% of the Asian and Pacific Islander characters fell into some sort of stereotype. So whether that was um, 
there were emasculated men, hypersexualized women, as well as perpetual foreigner and disparagement. So people were disparaged um, and sometimes, you know, said racist and sexist slurs to. And one really concerning uh, statistic was that out of all of them, 25% of the Asian and Pacific Islander characters didn't survive. They died by the end of the film and all but one of them died violently. And this is really concerning given that we have currently an uptick in anti-Asian hate incidents and specifically over 6,000 uh, reported anti-Asian hate crimes or, or things said to them that were hateful. Um, that was, you know, just in the span of one year in this past year that was reported to stopaapihate.org. And I think that, you know, we need to be very concerned about how representation may not have a one-to-one -one correspondence to violence, but it certainly doesn't help when, uh, you know, AAPIs, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders are on screen and they don't survive. And they're just kind of expendable characters that, you know, it dehumanizes them, right? It says that, you know, they're not worth um, having any empathy towards because they're just there to have like dead bodies, right? And so I think we were very concerned about those findings. For your study, you looked at 1,300 of the top films from 2007 to 2019. Um, why 1,300 films? Why uh, films from that specific time period? And, you know, how did you choose the films? Yeah, so the top 100 films from each year, that's why we have, th there's 13 years involved. So that's why there's 1300. And these are the top 100 box office. Um, so these are the popular films, right? The most watched, uh, the most lucrative. So these are the films that studios care about, that audiences care about. And so we need to examine these films, even though, you know, indie films are fantastic, but they're not viewed by as many people. And we're talking about influence, right? Influence of these films and more eyeballs. So more people actually reached and more people um, are, it's part of our popular consciousness. So more people know about it, talk about it, critics review them. So these are, um, you know, that's important data to look at. And so we, we chose them, you know, just based on what society deems as important. As someone with a liberal arts background, I was very curious, how did you go about studying all the films? I mean, you, you probably had to have at least one person watch every single one of these films, uh, categorize the appearance of Asians and Asian Americans in the films and Pacific Islanders in the films. So can you talk at all about the making of the study in terms of the, uh, the legwork necessary? Yeah, so USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative is a well-run machine. They have lots of trained undergraduate and um, graduate um, research assistants. So each film, in terms of the qualitative, I can speak to, had two coders actually uh, looking at the same film, so that you know there could be more um, consistency and accountability. And and so yeah, so we we went over um, certain categories and, and questions. And we all had the, everybody had a training session together. I was part of that training session and any questions would be brought to meetings and then worked out. And I, you know, and also there was a team of um, faculty and professors who overlooked the study. So I had questions and we would go back and, you know, so there was very much um, a very well-run social science um, study. And, and so, yeah, it was actually, it was so much fun. I, um, I really enjoyed it. I was, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it sounds horrible that I would enjoy looking at, you know, the lack of representation. But I think that it's it's important because we need to be able to say exactly what we need to improve representation and not rather than just say, oh, it sucks or it's racist. I think we can we can identify the points where 
okay, so this is where, you know, the, the, the 25%, over 25% dead, that was something that actually I haven't thought about, right? But of course, right? Actually, Daniel Day Kim tweeted out that that was that's his experience as an actor, that he doesn't survive in so many of his films. And I was surprised. I mean, you know, I mean, I haven't followed all of Daniel Day Kim's um, uh, roles, but I, it's like you don't even think about it, right? You just you just watch and you're not thinking, oh, you know, Asian Americans are dying off at like a, maybe a higher rate. And so um, he said that he couldn't even it was a problem for his children, that his children, you know, because it's weird, right? Your kids are watching you in a movie and you die. It's kind of disturbing for them if you're their father. And yeah. so just reading and, about and they're, that. If they're young kids, if they're young kids, too. Yes, yes. If they're young kids. And and so I think that. When I saw that, I thought, gosh, historically, things haven't changed that much because we had Anna Mae Wong, who was an actress, you know, the first Chinese American, first Asian American actress, uh, female actor to blow up in the United States. Well, blow up, meaning that she had, you know, a lot of roles. She wasn't the lead. Um, She she experienced a lot of uh, stereotypes and barriers. And one of the things she did was die a lot, either by suicide or someone killing her. And she joked that on her tombstone, it should say, you know, I die. She died a thousand deaths. Um, because that was that was her her fate, you know, in Hollywood. And so because she played a lot of Madame Butterfly kind of roles. And and so, you know, the, those were all, fa- all fated to die. And so I think that the fact that she experienced that and Daniel Day Kim still experiences that makes me feel like, wow, how can we talk about this and how it relates to the dehumanizing of Asian Americans in society right now and the blaming and the kind of, you know, the, when you see these videos of Asian Americans being beaten up and, and even killed, it's, um, it's so hard to, to understand, right? Because you feel like there's the model minority stereotype, you know, so we have these like really weird kind of juxtaposed um, ideas of Asian Americans as foreign threats and, you know, they're going to come and, and, and kill off people, whether through disease or, you know, because the, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act and even before the Chinese Exclusion Act, the Page Act of 1875 actually prevented Chinese women from coming to this country on the idea that they are prostitutes and that they are threats, right? And they're going to be temptations. They might bring disease. All those arguments are really old and they're codified into our laws. And so it isn't a surprise to think about how that still has an impact on today, but that Hollywood is part of that, right? Hollywood reproduces those same ideas that Asian Americans are threats, that, that they're, that they're, you know, that they're going to be um, enemies and harmful and they're perpetual foreigners. And so, and of course that they deserve to die on screen. Those ideas are really harmful. And I think that Hollywood needs to be aware of their role in perpetuating these stereotypes. The study also found some other shocking things or rather there are shocking ways to put what the study found, right? Uh, LA Times wrote this up and uh, uh, described it as uh, only 3.4% of the top grossing movies in the past 13 years or in the 13 years of the study featured at least one API protagonist in a prominent role. Uh, These characters were portrayed by 22 individual actors, including Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who is credited in 14 of the 44 films. Um, so that basically means he accounts for a f- Dwayne The Rock Johnson himself as an individual accounts for a third of all API movie leads, uh, according to this study. Uh, another fact of the study, white male actors named Ben, Chris, Daniel, James, Jason, John, Josh, Michael, Robert, Sean or Tom. Uh, any of those were more likely to be hired as the top actor than any Asian, Asian American or Pacific Islander woman of actor uh, 
with any name. And uh, 15.3 white male actors are hired for every one API actor uh, in the 1300 films from 2007 to 2019. So these are pretty uh, upsetting statistics. Did anything you find really surprise you? Were you shocked by this? Or were you like, no, this is pretty much what I expected? I think that it's not surprising in the sense that, you know, you feel like, yes, there's a lack of representation, but then to see actual numbers and to see um, that all these white dudes, you know, that they can have any chance, um, not that, you know, it's easy to break into Hollywood, but that in comparison, do we really want all those stories (laughs) with, you know, all those Chris's right in Hollywood, white male Chris's? over one story about an Asian American woman. I mean, is it that bad? And I think that that is, it is that bad. And I think to live with that and to recognize that is hard because, um, cause it feels personal, right? Cause it feels like, wow, people are not allowing stories that actually, again, reflect my lived experience. So it takes me, you know, once every 25 years to see Joy Luck Club. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, because that was the, the number of years between Joy Luck Club and Crazy Rich Asians, where another, um, Chinese American woman um, led film. And so I think that it feels hard, especially during this time of, um, anti-Asian hate. It feels like, gosh, um, how can we just call it entertainment? How can Hollywood really position itself as doing better in terms of diversity and inclusion when the study, when the data doesn't pan out that way, right? And and I love The Rock. I think that, and I, I actually find it very interesting that I think he's actually claiming his Samoan heritage more and more in recent years. And I love Young Rock. I was uh, talking about it on, on a program where I feel like, um, you know, traditionally, like sitcoms and family shows, they've been very white, right? It's very seldom to see actually a family sitcom that's about a family of color. I think I grew up watching the Cosby show. That was, again, me looking for, you know, anything that is non-white that relates to my literary experience. And then those actors then move on, you know, especially the young kids who are maybe um, it's their first role or or the the teen. And then they they go on to have careers because they're you know, they're, they're counted and they're have that on their resume. But then when you have mostly white families and Asian Americans can't get their foot in the door. Right. So I think it's great that in young rock, the, one of the actors that plays um, the rocks younger self, now he's cast in black Adam with the rock. Right. So, so I think that the rock's success um, isn't always, it's like, it's not like move along rock, you know, give someone else a chance. No, I think that the rock's success actually will lead to greater openings for Pacific Islander actors, which is a positive for overall representation. Yeah. But it is a, uh, rather startling way to illustrate the lack of, uh, AAPI representation, um, by referring to the rock success and, and how big of a portion of it he represents. Um, one of the things that I thought was pretty interesting about the study is that it doesn't just cover representation in terms of appearances on screen, right? Uh, that is necessary, but not sufficient. You also go into the quality and the nature of those appearances, and you actually developed a rubric for evaluating these appearances, right? You identified whether or not the appearances fell into the following categories, uh, whether uh, the person is, quote unquote, invisible, silenced, uh, stereotypical tokenized, a sidekick slash villain, or fully human. 
let's talk about this. I'm curious about how you came up with these categories. You know, why why were these the canonical categories for you? Um, just uh, reflect on on that a little bit, if you may. Yeah. So when I sifted through the data and looked at what kinds of stereotypes were popping up, I mean, again, this is like <laughs> such a sad work where you're looking for racism, right? I feel like that's what sociologists are always doing. We're looking for the racism, um, not looking in terms of, well, that's a great thing about sociology and, and also um, communication studies is that this data it's data-based, right? It's not like we're looking, we're making things up, but we're actually coding through systematically yes. and and counting and and identifying. So it isn't like we're making things up, but in fact, yeah, you, we are you need to operationalize your definition. You need to like have something that's, that's right. replicable. And that's why you have multiple coders per movie. So mm -hmm. everyone can say like, we agree, this falls into this definition you provided. Yeah, and I think what's um, what your question to me is: there anything surprising? I think none of the Asian Americans who are working in Hollywood find it totally surprising because they are living it, right? So I think it's it's both uh, identifying, but also it resonates with people's lived experience, and certainly the stereotyping, especially the actors can again down to Kim, um, you know, just with his own lived experience as an actor um, can verify the 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 death part. Uh, what we found is that um, yeah, besides the numbers, which is the invisibility we also found that um about 75 percent of the tertiary characters um, of 2018 2019 spoke five lines or less right so when you're talking about five lines or less characters these are not complex characters they're essentially expendable right they're not they're not doing anything in terms of the plot they're uh, walk-on type roles and i remember reading an interview where stephen young after the walking dead actually auditioned for five lines or less a role and feeling like, do we have any hope at all <laughs> if if he can't even like get offers after having such a successful run as one of the most popular characters on The Walking Dead? Um, you know, what hope do we have? I mean, you know, now he's doing great, but again, he had to go to you know he had to go to South Korea to do Burning, um, and work with Bong Joon Ho on Okja, and then also you know he's working uh, he's working in smaller films. He he produced. He was one of the producers of Minari, right? And so having um, he still has to go outside of the system. So we're talking about big box office films. He still has to go outside of mainstream Hollywood to be able to get that Best Actor Oscar and. I hope now he's going to get tons of offers, but like deep inside because of, you know, all the studies that I've done and the history, I, I have that fear of, wow, you know, maybe that's not even enough because, uh, because of Hollywood's, I think, deeply ingrained stereotypes and biases. And so, you know, so I talked about the stereotypes, you know, that was one of the, the categories we looked at. Uh, we looked at tokenization, isolation, and 30% of the um, Asian and Pacific Islander characters in 2019 were either the only Asian or Pacific Islander character on screen or the only one in their films. So this kind of tokenization isolation also makes it that a character is not complex, right? Um, that there aren't any other Asians, they're, they're, they're marginalized. And, um, and it's actually, for me, it's not a lived reality. I don't know any, I don't know any Asians that actually like live in isolation and have no Asian friends or family even. Right. Um, because, and I, and I think that takes us to, um, the, the, it's only 13% of Asian and Pacific Islander characters were by our definition, fully human. And how I defined it was how we defined it was um, in terms of full spectrum of relationships. So this doesn't necessarily like mean this is reflection of reality, but on screen, 
the the most complex characters have friends, have family, and have romantic interests, right? It could just be a partner. It doesn't have to be a rom-com. But usually the characters that uh, audiences most relate to have those full spectrum of relationships. And we found that only 13% of Asian and Pacific Islander these are the leads, right? Only the, even in the leads, they, only 13% of them actually have all those relationships. So that means that they're not really fully human, right? So, so they're tokenized or the only ones on their screen. Um, you know, the people, uh, you know, the ones that are, that are maybe um, in the background, if there are at all, if they're not tokenized, they're speaking five lines or less. So it's a world, it's a largely white world, right? That Asians and Pacific Islanders are inhabiting. Um, which, you know, is, is the case in some cases, right, in terms of workplace, sometimes we're the only ones, but that means that we're not seeing their families, right? We're not seeing their parents, we're not seeing um, anybody else. And, and I think that that creates a one dimensional portrayal that then again, c- contributes to the dehumanizing um, of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders on screen. Since your study has come out, I'm curious, what has been your reaction to the reaction to the study? I think that I really wanted this and I'm so glad I was able to feel like the Asian and Pacific Islander community uh, are feeling seen and they're feeling like, okay, this is, this is good that people know the full extent of how we are not represented. And, and of course um, I think the, the, the major news outlets have covered it and, and that's always good because we want the industry to be interested and hopefully make some changes. And I've actually been invited um, this Asian American Pacific Islander heritage month to talk to a lot of big studios and they're very open to, and actually when I was asked to speak to them, they told me specifically to give them um, ideas on what to do, how to change, how to be better, and to yeah, to just get us, you know, say it straight to them, not not hold back. Which I think that that wasn't the case when I started studying this, you know, back in the two thousands. People were not like, oh, just tell us how it is, tell us what to do. They were very resistant, I think, or at least, or maybe just you know, they just ignored it. They didn't care because it wasn't something that was. Um, I think part of their business model, it wasn't, you know, DEI, diversity, you know, equity, inclusion was not a, it was not an acronym that's popular now. And I think that things have changed at least in terms of um, interest, but then we, we look at the outcome and the outcome is still not there. And so we're still, I think, you know, in the beginnings of, of advocating for change and seeing actual change. And a lot of the changes are coming from the margins, right? They're coming from the indies. They're coming from actual Asian American Pacific Islander um, filmmakers who are wanting to tell their story, to tell their live story, like Lulu Wong talk, talking about her story with her grandmother in The Farewell, Lee Isaac Chung telling his story as a child growing up in Arkansas. And, and so all of this, um, all these in the margins, I think are pushing in and pushing up maybe the, the kind of bottom up and that's important, right? Because we do still need those indies to be able to feel like, okay, it doesn't have to make a lot of money or even necessarily reach a huge audience, especially since there are a lot of them are smaller budget. Um, they, but they allow for the beauty and the authenticity and the specificity of our lived experience and our stories to be able to be exposed to a wider audience. And then hopefully those kind of storytelling um, authenticity will then infiltrate and permeate, you know, mainstream representations of us.
The study concludes with a list of practical advice for uh, people out there in the world, for people in Hollywood, people in the industry, what they can do to improve Asian and Asian American and Pacific Islander representation in uh, films and TV and culture. Um, uh, I don't know if we want to go through them all right now, but maybe we could go through the top four or five. What is some practical advice you have for people out there who read this and recognize that it's a problem? I think most of our takeaways are geared towards the industry because we believe that it's a systemic problem and it shouldn't be, you know, shouldn't the burden shouldn't fall necessarily on um, everyday Asian Americans. Although there are takeaways I think that I can provide, but in the study, it really is a study that's geared towards the system because we want to target the system. We want to see the system change. We want to see decision makers, you know, put these things into practice. And so, you know, we want there to be, uh, you know, we, we identify those stereotypes that I just talked about and we want them to be aware so that they could address those systemic biases of, you know, making Asian American Pacific Islander characters die on screen or um, so making sure that they live, right. Making sure that they have a full spectrum of relationships. I mean, it feels like ridiculous, right. Let them live. Um, it feels so simple. Not that they can never die, but when there's, you know, when there's a, they're kind of a, a, a disproportionate number or, um, or a, especially the violent deaths, it feels like, it feels like there there's a, a callousness, right, to current uh, situations in terms of anti-Asian hate in U.S. society. Um, and so we want them to move towards more authentic portrayals, right, and also hire, of course, people behind the scenes, Asian Pacific Islander storytellers, uh, and even working with vendors, consultants, suppliers, um, and of course, supporting the the smaller you know indies right through nonprofit organizations like Cape or CAM or VC. So these are uh, Visual Communications, the Center for Asian American Media. These are they have film festivals, right? Film festivals where they elevate Asian American voices and Pacific Islander voices, and so supporting those and East West players, right? Going to going beyond their their typical you know top agencies because you know the agencies um, there have been research to show that agencies tend to be very biased in who they represent and so be going beyond the top agencies having open you know ca casting calls having casting calls that you know you go go to the theater to you know east west players has been around since the since the 60s right it's the oldest pan-ethnic um theater and there's you know just wonderful like i think somebody asked me they said that they were looking for maybe um Filipino older actors and they couldn't find any. I was like, you know, I just saw Mama Mia before, before, you know, quarantine um, at, at East West Players. And they had tons of, you know, middle-aged Filipino actors who were fantastic. So it's like, you know, people are always like, where are they? And I'm like, well, I just saw someone last week, you know, because I'm in those circles. Right. So I think Hollywood needs to go beyond they're uh, very limited, I think, social networks and they need to and, and the kind of go to places they need to go beyond that, because unfortunately, you know, the, those, those there's barriers to those agencies, right? There's barriers to entry. And so they do need to go beyond those. And so those are those are some of the things that um, I think we uh, we try to you know get people to think about in the industries to, in order to broaden the, the, the net to include more Asians and Pacific Islanders. I think it's great advice for people in the industry. I'm curious for those out there in the world, right, that aren't in the industry, right, uh, who are reading this, they're very passionate about this, they want to help. At the very least, they want to be more aware. Kind of what are you hoping they take away from this? I hope that um, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders can be more intentional in the way that they consume media, that they can support um, and 
I think educate themselves and find out about the the smaller films, the films that maybe don't make it outside of the Asian American film festivals, but need, you know, more more eyeballs. And and I and I get it. It's you know we're busy. It's hard. There's so much media to consume. I mean, every streaming website. You know, there's it's it's overwhelming actually in terms of the choices we have now. But I think that if if we really do want to see representation change. We really do need to put our money where our um, desires are, right? If we want to see more Asian Americans and Pacific Islander content, then we need to put, you know, we need to go and actually order Minari off of, you know, whatever, you know, pay-per-view. It's, it was like, what, $30 or something? It was, you know, or $20, $20 I think, at one point. Um, but even Raya, you know, I mean, it's Disney Plus, but, you know, to to show that we want to support the first Southeast Asian Disney princess, uh, a lot of my Asian American friends were not buying it because they didn't want to pay for it. Right. And I was like, no, you need to pay for it. If you want to say to <laughs> Disney, we want more of this. Right. Because yeah. um, it feels like, oh, we're just giving money to Disney. But, you know, the mainstream organization, I mean, Disney is a powerhouse. <laughs> I mean, it's basically every everything, Marvel, Star Wars. Right. And and they're they are, you know, getting better about including more Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. But I think that we need to support those projects. I mean, there was, you know, there was and, and also not just the kind of big popular ones like Crazy Rich Asians, even though I think that that was great that we all came out and a lot of us came out to support it. Not not necessarily because we love that genre or love that, you know, that story, but because we understood the importance of having something succeed at the box office so that it could serve as a comparable, right? So that other people could say, other people who are pitching their projects can say, oh, well, it's like Crazy Rich Asians, which made a lot of money. You know, you should consider my project. So we, if we want the, you know, the, the, the project about brown Asians, you know, about Asians that aren't crazy rich, but are maybe crazy poor, um, we need to, you know, we need to really actually seek those projects out. I mean, you know, Kickstarters, anybody could actually help with that. Actually, I know someone who is doing indie film. He talked about, he talked about having Asian American friends who are maybe in finance or business that, that sometimes will volunteer their time and come help out with the project. Right. Or go and like, um, you know, if they can't volunteer their time, they volunteer, you know, they, they donate money. There's all sorts of ways to actually get involved. Um, because there are a lot of filmmakers, there's a lot of talent out there. And, and I think that you just have to be more proactive, just like any kind of activism, you know, one has to be proactive and not just sit on the sidelines. Indeed. Well, I definitely support the message of uh, supporting financially the work that you want to see more of in the world. Nancy Wong Yoon is a sociologist at Biola University and the author of Real Inequality, Hollywood Actors and Racism. She's also the co-author of The Prevalence and Portrayal of Asian and Pacific Islanders Across 1300 Popular Films, a study which comes out of the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative. Nancy Wong Yoon, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, David. It's been fun. Welcome to Weekly Recommendations, the part of the show where we recommend stuff that we've been watching, listening to, eating, drinking, smelling, whatever. This week, I wanted to recommend an article by Monica Hess over at The Washington Post. Uh, the headline of the article is The Unreasonable Expectations of American Motherhood. And in this article, Monica discusses how 
she made the decision to recently have a child only after great consideration because in her opinion america signals to people that they don't give a shit about moms uh, and they are not going to do basically anything to take care of mothers or make their lives easier uh, and so this article really delves into uh, a, a sharp critique of that perspective and I found it to be very valuable, especially as we're coming out of this pandemic and reconsidering many elements of American society. Uh, worth checking out The Unreasonable Expectations of American Motherhood, an article at The Washington Post that I'll link to in the show notes. I also asked my guest, Nancy Wong Yoon, for a weekly recommendation. Here is what she had to say. So there's this group called the Linda Lindas. They've blown up big because they gave this performance at the Los Angeles Public Library with a song called Racist Sexist Boy. It is an amazing song written based on an actual heartbreaking racist incident that one of the young members experienced. And, and they just signed with a big label and and I think they were on Jimmy Kimmel. And so it's exciting to see young Asian American women um, blow up big, talking and singing about racism and sexism. It's um, it's a kind of teen anthem that I wish I had um, when I was growing up before, you know, when I was watching I Love Lucy and not understanding race barely to have something like this happen. I just I feel like I feel like envious of Gen Z, you know, um, I feel like, wow, you know, they have they have so many um, young, conscious uh, women of color who are coming up and and really speaking their mind fearlessly. And I just I just recommend them so much. That's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of Culturally Relevant. Thanks so much for listening. Again, you can find more episodes at culturallyrelevantshow.com. You can also follow this podcast on Twitter at CREFshow. That's C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W. I'd greatly appreciate it if you could leave a podcast review at Apple Podcasts. It would mean so much. This episode was edited and produced by me, David Chen, and it was powered by Simplecast. Check out simplecast.com for a great podcast management and analytic solution. Simplecast.com. I really appreciate this service and thank them for all they're doing for shows like Culturally Relevant. That's going to do it for us for today's episode. We'll see you next week. 